morning. Uh, today's reading is from the Gospel of Matthew. If uh, you are reading from the Bibles, it's page 969. Uh, otherwise, open your app and get to your relevant page. So the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. There's a Pixar movie called Inside Out. I wonder if any of you have seen it. It's a movie called Inside Out. Uh, first movie I cried, out, cried at as an adult, so as a 21-year-old, I was in tears at the end of this, and I was like, what is happening to me? I'm becoming an old man. Well, it's, it's a movie that is about emotions. We get an insight into the mind of a wee girl called Riley. And throughout the film, we see how our emotions, uh, the emotions are personified on the screen behind me, uh, how our emotions impact our day-to-day -day actions. And one of the emotions is anger. See the wee red lad there? He is anger. And anger in the movie is often the comic relief character. So the way he responds to situations makes you laugh, genuinely laugh. But we all know this, ironically, uh, that if you are on the receiving end of someone else's anger, uh, it's not that funny, is it? Like, words and actions that are done in anger are intended to hurt you, not make you laugh. And we've all been on the receiving end, of course, of anger, and we know how horrible it is. But yet... <laughs> If you're anything like me, whenever you're angry, you use little phrases and words to justify it or minimize it. So you'd say, uh, you pushed my buttons, meaning I have buttons. It's your fault that you stamped on them. You might say, I lost my temper, meaning I had it once, but your actions have led me to misplace it. It's somewhere, but it's your fault. This morning, as we think about anger, we have an opportunity to see what the Lord Jesus has to say about anger, specifically anger towards others. Does he excuse it? Does he soften it? We're going to see. If you are a regular here at the bridge, you'll know that we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, the King's Speech, which is a particular type of genre. It's important when you read the Bible to take note of the genre that you're reading. So there's songs, there's poems, there's narrative, there's prophecies, and that impacts the way you read them and understand them. And the particular passage that we're looking at this morning is one of instruction and teaching. We, we thought about it a few weeks ago, how chapters 5 to 7 are like the handbook of British birds. The Sermon on the Mount helps us spot and identify traits of a follower of Jesus. 
Living out what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't make someone a disciple or a Christian, but they're a sign that they are one. I think uh, John Stoth is worth quoting at length here. He'll come up on the screen. Jesus spoke the sermon to those who were already his disciples. The high standards he set are appropriate only only to such. We do not achieve this privileged status by attaining Christ's standards, rather by attaining his standards or at least approximating, trying to get close to them, we give evidence of what by God's free grace and gift we already are. Today, as we read uh, what Jesus has to say about anger, it might feel like a standard that is out of reach, but if you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus, his Holy Spirit is in you, enabling you to live this out. So let's begin by first considering the Pharisees' righteousness. The Pharisees' righteousness. So if you look at uh, verse 20, Jesus has just dropped a bit of a bombshell on his listeners by saying, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is shocking because the Pharisees are A-star students, or at least appear to be A-star students. They are the gold standard in righteousness. So his listeners are thinking, how could anyone be more righteous than these people? Jesus is going to do this by unpacking uh, six examples, the first of which we're looking at this morning. And as he works through these six examples, he shows how the Pharisees' righteousness is like a cup or a bowl that is clean on the outside but filthy within. It's often the case with religious people. Clean on the outside, dirty on the inside. Uh, A wee bit like this cup. So shiny on the outside, dazzling, but dirty on the inside. Jesus takes his first example of murder. He says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. This is spot on. This is true. Uh, The sixth commandment, the Pharisees are right. God does forbid murder. You should leave here and think, murder, bad. The Pharisees think, okay, don't murder, tick, job done. We're righteous. We're good enough. But Jesus is going to show how this is just a surface level righteousness, externally dazzling, shiny like the cup, internally dirty. For Jesus, he's the fulfillment of the law and prophets. He knows not just the letter of the law, but the heart of it. And the heart of the law, I think it'll come up on the screen, is to love God first and foremost, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Murder, Jesus says, is an external symptom of a much deeper problem in our hearts. And Jesus makes this link, maybe a link that we would naturally make, between murder and anger. Jesus says that, murder, the seeds of murder are found in the heart, in anger. I think one of the reasons Jesus does this is because if you flick back in your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis 4, the first sin that's committed outside of the Garden of Eden is murder, when uh, Cain murders his brother Abel. And where does this murder begin? Where are the seeds of it found? It's found in Cain's heart, In Genesis 4, we read this. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? So Cain's anger leads him to do the unthinkable, to kill his brother. That's the way anger works, isn't it? It leads us to do things and say things that we never think we would do, which is why Jesus wants us to know the great danger of anger the great danger of anger, but I say to you 
is our second point. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Let's ask a few questions as we look at these verses. First, what is anger? I think this is a helpful definition from Jeremy Bridges here. Um, He has a book, Respectable Sins, which is a very helpful, convicting book. He says that anger is the strong feeling of displeasure accompanied by emotions, words, and actions that are hurtful to the object of anger. Fairly obvious. But notice, if you look down, notice the object of the anger in Jesus' example. It is a brother or sister. Jesus isn't just talking about family relations. This is talking about another Christian, another disciple. So three times in verses 22 and 23, he says brother or sister. Jesus Christ has the audacity to suggest that Christians would get angry with one another. Can you imagine Christians being angry with one another? Oh, I I can't imagine it personally. Jesus says that the way a follower of his views their anger is radically, is to be radically countercultural in a way that is salty and shiny. His disciples will not excuse or make light of their anger. They will view it as the very seeds of murder. (laughs) We do need to press pause here, don't we? And think, what about righteous anger? Or in your footnote, you read, without cause. What about righteous anger? Surely that's okay. Because you think, Jesus got angry, didn't he? So there must be some sort of anger that is okay. Here's two examples of Jesus' anger that spring to mind. So uh, Matthew 21, Jesus drives out the moneylenders in the temple with a whip. Get out of here. That is definitely him angry. Second example, a wee bit more obscure. I think we see the Lord Jesus angry in John chapter 11, verse 33. A bit more obscure. But his friend Lazarus has died. And we read in John eleven thirty three that he is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Commentators note that this is like an angry animal ready to charge. Jesus is angry at death here. He's angry because it is an intruder and a robber in the world that he made. He's angry because death does not belong in this world. I bring this up because if you've ever lost someone, you know that there is that anger within you. I think that anger is God hardwires into us. Death should not be here. This is not the way he made this world to be. We can pick up on that at another point. But I think those two examples of Jesus' anger here gives us two tests to see if our anger is truly righteous. This is again from uh, the author Bridges, who I mentioned earlier. So here's the first test. Are you angry about God's moral law being broken? Are you angry that people aren't listening to God, aren't living out his law, ignoring him, disregarding him? Is that why you're angry? If you answer yes, here's the second test. Are you in control when you're angry? For you see, righteous anger is not out of control. It's not about vengeance. It's not about losing your temper. Righteous anger should be a reflection of God's righteous anger. Nath read it to us earlier. God is slow to anger. He's patient. His anger is measured. His judgment does not come quickly. Even when you think of that example of the Lord Jesus whipping people out of the temple, he's been going up to the temple for 30 years. 
Imagine you get angry and you wait 30 years to respond. You just wouldn't do it. If you're like me, it's instant, isn't it? Righteous anger has a control about it because you trust that God is the ultimate judge, that his judgment will be right and fair. (laughs) I don't know about you, but just those two tests, are you angry about God's moral law being broken? Are you in control when you're angry? If you just take those two tests and run any of your anger from the past month through them, if you're like me, my anger is not righteous. It's not righteous. What does my anger, what does our anger reveal? What does our anger reveal? Well, if God's, if righteous anger is what we feel whenever God's priorities are offended and his law being broken, if righteous anger trusts God to be judged, then my anger reveals something. It reveals my idols. That's just a Bible word that means anything or anyone that takes greater priority than God. My anger reveals that I am my own biggest idol. I get angry when my word isn't listened to. I get angry when my priorities aren't prioritized by others. I get angry when my ways aren't seen as perfect. I get angry when my wisdom isn't viewed as such. You can see, can't you? Whenever I get angry, I act like God. My unrighteous anger is most clearly seen in my words. What do my words, what do our words reveal about us? If you look down at verse 22, Jesus says that our words reveal a murderous heart. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So these are just two common insults of the day. So Raka is about your brain, your intelligence. Raka means empty-headed, block-headed, thick as champ. If you're from Northern Ireland, stupid. That's what it means. The word fool is about your heart, your moral character, who you are deep down. Psalm 14 verses 1 to 2 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. These two insults, Jesus says, displays a murderous heart. Now, of course, you won't say raka or fool in day-to-day life, but you might call someone useless. You might call them thick. You might say good for nothing. Well, my fear is a hindrance more than a help. I need that reminder that that person that I'm speaking about is someone made in God's image. By our words, by my words, I am making it known to everyone that life would be so much easier, so much better if that person just wasn't around. I may not be physically murdering them, but I'm doing everything I can to bury them. Here's an example. An example might help. A good few years ago, uh, a friend of mine uh, found someone in their church small group really difficult, made them angry. Can you imagine? And he often came back from this, and he would vent at me his anger. He would say lots of things about this person. And at the time, I thought, this is harmless. This is no big deal. But as I reflected back on it this past week, I could see the damage that it did to me personally. For whenever I saw that person in church, I didn't want to go near near them. I didn't want to talk to them. For as I listened to those words, any potential relationship was murdered because my perception of them was, why would I want anything to do with them? Why would I want them in my life? 
we think, don't we, that words are no big deal. That nursery rhyme is so wrong, isn't it? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will hurt forever. That's how it should be said. Is it harmless? Are our words harmless? Jesus shows us how seriously he takes anger. Three times, if you look down, Jesus alludes to the reality of judgment for those who sin by their anger. I don't think there's any gradation here. Like, if you're angry, you'll face judgment, and then rack of the court, and then fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is just underlining very clearly to the self-righteous Pharisee, to the Dave Lothar, externally dazzling, internally dirty, that God takes my anger, takes your anger very seriously. That our hearts are in grave danger if we allow anger to fester, which explains why he speaks with the urgency, such urgency of reconciliation. That's our third point, the urgency of reconciliation. So Jesus uses two parables here, look down and you'll notice, about how quickly his disciples should seek to be reconciled, to make amends, to have friendly relations restored between them. If anger is so serious, reconciliation is urgent. So two parables, a religious one and a legal one, and they both make the same point. Let's look at the religious one. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your, your gift. Now, to Jesus' listeners, this must have sounded totally absurd. So the altar was in Jerusalem. It was in the temple. And let's just say, for example here, that Jesus' listeners are from his hometown of Galilee. Galilee is 80 miles from Jerusalem. So uh, from Cardiff to Pendine, from Cardiff to Pendine, 80 miles away. That's quite a trek, isn't it? And Jesus is saying, if you have spent a week traveling here, you've already bought an animal, you're at the altar, you're all ready to go, and you remember that there's someone a week away. Someone back home is angry because of something that you have said to them. You should drop everything. Leave the goat. Travel back. Take a week to get back there and make amends. Ask for their forgiveness. Then come back another week's travel and then offer your gift. Ridiculous, right? It seems so ludicrous. Sometimes we do this when we read the Bible. We just let Jesus' words wash over us and think, yeah, that seems about right. But just put yourself into the situation. You have spent a week traveling. You realize someone back here in Cardiff was upset with you. Imagine hopping on the plane and traveling all the way back, then being reconciled to them, then hopping on that plane again and going to see them going back to where you originally were. If you heard that story, if you heard someone did that in real life, in this century, you would think that they were deluded, completely absurd. What a waste of time. Why would you do that? You probably wouldn't believe it. But if someone did that to you, if someone traveled all the way back to ask for your forgiveness, you would know that they took the thing that they did against you really seriously. It was sure that they value you and that they value the Lord. And just to be clear, remember, this is all in the context of a religious setting. <laughs> and we believe that Jesus is God. 
So God is saying to us in this passage that you'd be better off not coming to church. And you think, surely God would want me to be at church. Singing all the songs, doing all the right things, having all the appearance of righteousness. You'd be better off not coming if you knew that there's someone you need to seek reconciliation with. Good grief. If, that, if there's not a bit of, oh my goodness, in us, I'm not sure we're listening to Jesus, are we? Now, the second example makes the same point from a legal perspective, but again, uh, well, different in some ways. This is about an adversary, so someone who isn't a Christian. And Jesus again says, that is immediate and urgent to be reconciled. Do not allow bad relationships to remain. Now, uh, for those with a tender conscience, uh, here's a guardrail. As you read the Gospels of the Lord Jesus, people are often angry with him. They are often really angry with him, and he doesn't spend his life going around being reconciled to them. So this doesn't mean if you're here this morning, you think, good grief, there's all these people I need to make, make reconciliation with. You know, how would you get through a day if you had to drop everything and go and be reconciled? I think this is, if someone's sitting here right now has some sort of internal burning that you know there's someone out there that you need to be reconciled to, pay attention. Pay attention if there's not one person in your mind. Jesus says you need to go and be reconciled to them. I wonder what you're thinking at this point. <laughs> Some thoughts probably in your minds. <sighs> really? Is this another thing I have to do? How can I be reconciled with that person when they have done so much wrong to me? Or perhaps you're just thinking, this is impossible. This is not possible. Well, here's some good news for you. Remember the trampoline beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you feel, I don't, I don't think I can do this, you're in a good place. And remember last week as well, more good news. Christ fulfilled the law for us. He can sit, let's consider now as we close how he fulfilled the heart of this law, how he embodies this for us. Fourthly and finally, the source of reconciliation. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn to First Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Friends, if you think that it's just, this is just impossible, that it can't be done, here's something to comfort you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. It should be on the screen. This is talking about the Lord Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, this should be such a comfort to you that the Lord Jesus was like you that he walked around this earth and he experienced insults being hurled at him, that he experienced suffering and pain, that a crown of thorns was put on him, that people spat in his face. They beat him. He knew that people were murdering him in their hearts and they literally murdered him. Friends, this morning, he knows what it's like to be on the receiving end of unrighteous anger from sinners. 
like you have and will experience in varying degrees. But friends, it should be an even greater comfort that the Lord Jesus is not like you. He's not like me. How does he respond to the anger of sinners? He did not retaliate. He made no threats. Can you imagine that? No retaliation, no threats. Why? Why did he not respond the way every other human being has ever responded? Because he knew the consequences of anger. He knew it meant judgment, which meant he also knew the urgency and the need for reconciliation for those who are under the righteous anger of God for their sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We hear that little parable, don't we? Of someone traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee, Pendine to Cardiff, to seek reconciliation with a friend that they've wronged. And you think, ridiculous, absurd, would never happen, not in a million years. No one would ever do that. Friends, in the gospel, we believe a far more ridiculous, scandalous message. That there is someone who has only ever done good to you, has only ever done right by you, and you have spurned that. You've treated him like an enemy. Friends, we believe in an outrageously good news story. Pendine and back. Heaven to hell and back for you. Incredible. That there is a God in highest heaven who was prepared to go to the very depths of hell for your sake. Why? Why would he do that? so that you may be healed. Peter says as well, doesn't he? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Friends, whenever we look at the Lord Jesus on the cross, we take the sin of anger so seriously because the Lord Jesus took it seriously. So seriously that he went to the cross. And we try to live out as best as humanly possible that righteousness he calls us to because he first reconciled us to him. By his wounds, you have been healed. Friends, this week, this month, this year, this life, when you inevitably lose your temper, when your buttons have been stomped on, look to the wounds. Look to the wounds. The sign of your unrighteous, sinful anger towards the Lord Jesus are the very sign that you have been healed, made you restored. How incredible. How incredible that he would lay his life down for us. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, this is the insanely good news of the gospel. From heaven to hell and back again for your sake. Friends, if you have never come to know this great shepherd and overseer of your soul, as you sing this song to close, Would it be a way of responding to the incredible kindness that the Lord Jesus has shown to you? Let us pray together.